Hello and welcome to the AutoVista Group podcast. I'm Daily Brief journalist Tom Gegus. And I'm Daily Brief editor Phil Curry. And I'm Senior Data Journalist Neil King. In today's show, we're discussing some of the biggest automotive topics from the last fortnight. So, why don't we kick things off with uh, EVRVs, or electrically chargeable residual values, as they're also known. Yeah, interesting subject. Um, yeah, I've been um, sort of uh, looking into recent developments, and one major thing I uncovered is that residual values of battery electric vehicles, this is after our sort of standard 36-month, 60,000-kilometer scenario, have actually uh, weakened in the big five European markets. You know, this is in January 2021, but actually weaker than when uh, COVID, you know, the COVID pandemic unfortunately took hold back in March. Um, you know, although there was sort of limited growth of RVs in the UK for battery electric vehicles. I mean, it's uh, it's fairly, honestly, just a sort of simple case of supply and demand, really. You know, we've had fairly resilient used car demand, but that is overall, but not specifically for, for BEVs. And, you know, with that phenomenal growth in uh, new registrations this year, there's just not a home for the used examples. I mean, just to sort of give you a bit of perspective on that, registrations of battery electric vehicles in the European new car market, so that's comprising the EU and the UK, grew by 126.5% in 2020, so an increase of about 650,000 units. But, you know, bear in mind that the the total passenger car market of Europe, again, EU and the UK, contracted by a quarter in, in 2020. So, you know, massive contrast in the development of regs and uh, RVs as far as BEVs are concerned. So what do we think led to such an explosion in BEV purchases and registrations then, Neil? It's a combination of things, really. I mean, one, obviously, you know, there's increased supply. You know, we've had crucial new model launches like the ID3. Secondly, incentives are sort of present, certainly in the, the major European markets, and have increased in some cases, partly through, during the COVID pandemic, such as in Germany. But I think, you know, a sort of cautionary note I would say is that ultimately I think demand for BEVs has suffered far less just because of a higher price point and you know anybody affected economically by the uh, unfortunate events of uh, well the last year more or less is <laughs> I think it's affected BEV buyers far less they tend to be more affluent buyers given the high price point of BEVs and my concern is really that as the market returns that yes, we'll still see growth in BEVs, but we won't necessarily see such high percentage shares. I mean, that remains to be seen. But yeah, it's just uh, it's just growth in BEVs and a real decline in demand for petrol and diesel, much more affected. I think the other core point to make, of course, is that, you know, given the economic pressures, a lot of people have been turning to used cars. Used car demand has been far more resilient. But for BEVs, that option is not really available because the latest BEVs clearly just don't exist on the used car market. And so people are still buying them new. Do you think things are going to get better over the, the course of the next couple of years? Because obviously, like you said, BEVs are, are very expensive. We also have the issue at the moment that there's there's hardly any models really out there on the market. But over the next couple of years, we've got you know the ID4 and the ID5 from Volkswagen, for example. We're going to have more from the EQ range at Daimler. There's going to be more as car makers push for more BEVs due to the CO2 emissions suddenly for the, the public, the buying choice is going to be expanded, although it's going to take some time, I'd imagine, for those newer models to filter into the used car segment. Absolutely. I mean, you know, just uh, one sort of point I'll make here, um, there's 
you know, some forecasts talk about electrically chargeable vehicles, so that's BEVs and plug-in hybrids, PEVs, gaining a market share of around 40% in Europe by 2030. Now, you know, 80% of those are estimated to be BEVs. So, you know, the lion's share. Now, you know, the big problem with that, of course, is as well that, as I say, you know, this is increasing. And that's, that's great news in many ways, all this fantastic increase in uh, demand for BEVs. And as you said, Phil, you know, in terms of uh, reducing, uh, you know, manufacturers' average fleet emissions, you know, that, that's all phenomenal news. But it creates a real problem because the more BEVs there are, you know, there's obviously more homes that have to be found for them as used cars. And, you know, we're struggling with that already. I mean, just one additional point I'd make on that as well is that, you know, ultimately, you know, there's a risk of oversupply to, to what we call the EV import markets. So, for example, you know, a lot of the let's say relatively unloved BEVs uh, from Germany were being exported to Norway, um, which is, you know, we all know is uh, obviously a phenomenal EV market. But, you know, OK, and as it stands, there are no signs of saturation on markets like Norway right now, you know, and demand for BEVs in Norway itself is expected to grow by about 13% annually, according to our colleagues at Rødbolka, the Autovista Group arm in Norway. But, you know, the, the problem is that, you know, they're, they're not really going to be able to absorb all the up and coming volumes. And that's not really going to solve this sort of a RV conundrum you know, unless there are uh, significant improvements in used car demand for BEVs, you know, through largely through government incentives, but also through development of a charging infrastructure, for example. It's interesting you mentioned Norway there as well, because obviously Norway is a market that has really adapted to the, what should we call it, BEV culture. BEV culture, I like the sound of BEV culture. They've really, they've really adapted to it, haven't they? They've really embraced the battery electric vehicle. Uh, they've been doing that for a number of years now. So do you think there's an opportunity uh, for us to learn from Norway when it comes to, not to RVs, but also about incentives? Because the market's kind of incentivized itself into a corner, hasn't it? There was a, an issue a couple of years back now where the government looked to to lift incentives and increase taxes on BEVs, and there was there was quite an uproar at the time, if I remember correctly. I mean, Norway's an interesting one. I mean, <laughs> one point I will make is that um, you know the Norwegian economy, a large part of it actually is fueled by oil, ironically. But interestingly, they tend to export a large part of their oil. And all that sort of oil money, interestingly, has been kind of funneled, channeled into, um, well, essentially developing the, the charging network for electric vehicles, uh, obviously you know, introducing incredibly healthy incentives whereby you know, it's, uh, you know, it's very attractive just to buy a Tesla. I mean, Tesla has a phenomenal market share in Norway and you know, the Model S is rather prolific. Hi, Phil here, and I want to remind you that you can subscribe for the AutoVista Group Daily Brief, a free email newsletter comprised of automotive news analysis and industry insight by visiting autovistagroup.com forward slash sign up. There's also our YouTube channel. Search for AutoVista Group Daily Brief on the platform where you will find a range of videos including interviews, industry insight and event reports. Finally, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or Amazon Music. Now, let's get back to our discussion. So, Neil, obviously a lot of what we're talking about here is about new cars and new car registrations, but where do we stand on used BEV ownership? 
this is the crux of it. Um, you know, unless demand for, for BEVs, you know, used demand for BEVs really gathers pace, you know, we can expect to see RVs continue to suffer. Obviously, there are solutions that I alluded to, but I mean, ultimately, government should be looking into providing incentives to encourage used BEV ownership. And these don't have to just be straightforward purchase incentives, you know, such as the 1,000 euro incentive introduced in France. But, you know, it can be a initiatives such as lower energy costs for charging electric vehicles um, and obviously a visible expansion of the charging network. I mean, something obviously uh, we've reported on this week is that there's a call for 1 million charging stations in the EU by 2024. And France specifically is very interesting, as I say, in addition to that incentive for used electric vehicles, they've also announced a 100 million euro funding scheme to expand via the charging infrastructure. I mean, aid would be supplied to companies installing plug-in charging points on the national road network. Um, But I would just highlight, to qualify for funding, these hubs have to be equipped with at least four fast charging stations, um, including at least 250 kilowatt points. Phenomenal ideas and initiatives coming out of France. And uh, let's see if uh, we can see more of the same elsewhere. Yeah, absolutely, Neil. I suppose this is one side of the coin where we're seeing a lot of government incentives and how things are being done on a national level. But how are we looking in terms of companies? What are, what are companies like JLR and Ford doing at the minute? Well, it's a good question, Tom. And the answer is that both JLR and Ford in the last week have said that they're going to go battery electric vehicle only. Well, to clarify that, more Jaguar is going battery electric vehicle only. And Ford have got a, a two-step model where they're going to be going electrified only from 2026 and BEV only from 2030. Now, what's interesting about this is the the timescales. For example, we talk a lot about the EU emissions targets for 2021, but we do actually have targets in place as well for 2025 and 2030, which are even bigger reductions on the targets than we have this year, for example. So for Jaguar, Jaguar Land Rover and Ford, 2025, 2030, very good dates. For Ford as well, it was really interesting to hear their target of BEV only from 2030 because of course we need to remember that Ford is the market leader in the UK and the UK is going to stop the sale of internal combustion engines in 2030. Now hybrids will still be allowed for a period, there'll be a transition period with hybrid sales stopping in 2035. At that point it will be we'll say zero emission or zero carbon emissions because of course we may have different uh, types of fuel in by that time. What really intrigues me is, is is the ambitiousness around these dates, around 2025 for Jaguar to 2030 for Ford. So in that case, Phil, which is really the more ambitious of the two plans? It's an interesting one, and I've, I've actually sat and, and puzzled this for a little while before, before coming into the podcast recording, actually. If we look at it, on the, on the face of it, the most ambitious is Jaguar, saying that they've only got four years to turn themselves into a battery electric vehicle, but Ford has given themselves nine years. But the dates are actually the misleading component in this. Let's let's take into account vehicle sales, for example. Now, I'm going to use 2019's vehicle sales as a reference point here because last year, we, we can't use last year because of the, the decimation of sales due to COVID-19. So in 2019... Jaguar sold 71,630 vehicles, according to the European Automobile Manufacturers Association, or ASEA. 
Ford sold 948,057 cars in the same period. Now, if you also take into account the fact that Jaguar has a battery electric vehicle already on the market, the I-PACE hit the road in June 2018, and Ford, at the time of recording this podcast in February, doesn't have a BEV on the roads. The Mustang Mach-E is due out soon, but still, the company doesn't really have a huge amount of experience with mass-producing a battery electric model, the, the Focus electric version was a very short-lived and very niche model when it came out a few years back and was and was discontinued. Ford is also going to be relying on the MEB platform from Volkswagen for its next battery electric vehicle. So in that respect, with such a high number of cars, I actually think Ford's target of 2030 is the more ambitious one. Jaguar has the experience and a very small number of vehicles which it needs to electrify in order to meet its four-year goal. Ford's got a lot of work to do. Whether they can do it or not, they probably can. They're throwing a lot of resources at it. They're they're starting production of electric vehicles in Cologne, for example. It's going to be interesting to watch this going forward and seeing just how how they, they stick to their plan. And of course, there's going to be very many other factors to take into account at the same time. Yeah, I was just going to add to that. I mean, I know we've discussed this ourselves, but, and, you know, you mentioned it yourself there, Phil, you know, in terms of the, the market share of Ford is obviously significantly higher than it is of, uh, you know, JLR. And, you know, just to convert such a, you know, go fully electric for such a massive company, I mean, I'd agree, you know, it's arguably far easier for JLR. But, you know, obviously there are other challenges, you know, you mentioned um, Ford converting alone over time to be increasingly electric. Now, Ford has a, a variety of plants and you know they could like let's say over time make one and then another and then another plant sort of dedicated to electric but jlr of course doesn't really have that option but you know apart from you know running let's say an electric line possibly but you know that all feeds into sort of platform development as well and whether you can run let's say ice internal combustion engine cars and electric vehicles down the same line again being on the same platform well, this is exactly it. And Ford has got, you know, Ford's got engine plants, you know, and a few locations. We also have to look at the future of the Dagenham plant, for example, in the UK, because that's that's the company's biggest diesel engine producing facility. And as we all know, diesel sales are plummeting now. Obviously, in the commercial vehicle sector, diesel is still king for the time being. But even there, Ford are going to be looking to electrify their transit fleets, for example. So would it make sense for Ford then to look at making the Dagenham plant an electric powertrain producing plant? There's so many questions. There's so many things that the company needs to do to think about the future of it. Whereas as you said, with JLR, they've already converted some of their plants to electric production on a, on a flexible production facility. So they're already very well advanced into their electrification program. Ford, we've always said, have been playing catch up with electric vehicles. They really have advanced in recent years. You know, the, the partnership with Volkswagen, for example, for the MEB, the production of the Mustang Mach-E. There are other electric vehicles potentially coming out very soon. And of course, they've got the plug-in hybrid models of the Cougar, although that was recalled a, a few months back. There'll be a plug-in hybrid version of the Puma, I believe, at some point, as well as other models in their range. But they're really going to have to be a bigger adapting. Again, can we really see an electric version of the ST line, for example? Possibly, but 
who knows? Yeah, it's, it's interesting you mentioned Volkswagen there. As you say, Ford is uh, largely leveraging Volkswagen's MEV platform. And, you know, as you, as you reported, you know, talking about going fully electric, there have been no such um, sort of statements from Volkswagen. I mean, Volkswagen was very, very quick to shift its strategy to going electric, especially in the wake of Dieselgate. But even then, you know, they were, by no stretch of the imagination, certainly nothing I've seen that suggests that they're planning on going fully electric. Ultimately, one day, yes, but they certainly have a set of timeline for that. And that's what I found especially intriguing that Ford has done this, as I say, when they're largely utilizing Volkswagen technology. Well, I think it all comes down to the question of rebrand versus subbrand. You've got Volkswagen Group, obviously, with the multiple brands, but if you focus on the Volkswagen car company itself, they're launching their electric vehicles under the ID tag. So we've got the ID3 out now, the ID4 coming along very soon, and then there's going to be the ID5, could be an ID2, so on and so forth. Take Daimler as well, for example. They have the EQ series. And then we have Hyundai, who announced the Ionic brand will become their electric-focused brand. So you've got the question of, do we go all out, all electric, or do we just concentrate on a certain segment of our, of our mark, as electric only and keep pushing out the internal combustion engine and the hybrids for as long as we can. And there's always going to be consumer demand for the internal combustion engine. Let's just not let's not forget that. At the moment, we see petrol sales are increasing. The battery electric segment is, is very small, but it is growing. We certainly can't call it an alternative fuel anymore. But of course, putting all your eggs into one basket and saying we're going to go electric only kind of cuts you off from doing other things as well. For example... JLR has said electric only, but they also have announced that they're going to be testing hydrogen fuel cell vehicles in the next 12 months. Of course, Hyundai is doing hydrogen as well. So with their sub-brand for electric vehicle, they could also produce a sub-brand for hydrogen. BMW is doing hydrogen with a vehicle from 2022. And then, of course, you've got e-fuels. Now, I'm going to probably talk about e-fuels another time, really, because it's a whole new subject and it's really fascinating but e-fuels can be used in internal combustion engines. You don't have to change anything to them. And they produce low to zero carbon. They're based on hydrogen as well. And you've got Porsche looking into those. So again, for, for Volkswagen, they can learn from Porsche and take that technology, take that knowledge and put that through and recommend that with, with their internal combustion engine vehicles. So is it too soon to put all your eggs in that basket? It's, it's a really interesting question. I think as well, we need to think about a lot of car makers are currently consolidating their platforms and announcing their platforms rather than announcing their vehicles. I mean, I'm pretty sure a lot of people know what the MEB is from VW, for example, Ford certainly know. So we could get to a point where the platform is king more than the car. And if you're talking about you know, scalable architecture and making sure that you can, you can build a platform that can underpin your vehicles and vehicles going forward, you also do need to think about alternative drivetrains i'm not including electric in that but of course you can also look outside your company to buy in your platforms and therefore save yourself even more time in having to develop something and keep your options open in that way as well yeah you're absolutely right phil i think there's a lot of interesting advances going on in the world of platforms as we've already mentioned of course there's vw's modular electric drive or meb land rover they've got their multi-longitudinal architecture or mla Hyundai has their electric global modular platform, EGMP, and you've got the common modular platform for PSA. So there are definitely a lot of different car makers exploring what they can do with modular designs. And 
applying different powertrains and types to different vehicles because you don't just have to build one engine for one car anymore, one gearbox, whatever. The amount of customization per drivetrain is almost limitless. I just wanted to say as well, that's a lot of letters there as well. Do you think some of these car makers have got a, a monopoly on some of the, the letters? Could we see an ABC platform coming forward? It does get quite confusing at times, really, doesn't it? It really does. It's like they've all had one giant game of Scrabble and walked away with different letters per each of them. So, yeah, it can definitely get confusing. But don't worry, because I think that introducing some outside platforms could make things a bit more simple, perhaps, if uh, different car makers will choose to opt for third-party platforms. For example, you've got the ReCorner, which is a modular, scalable platform. It's a really interesting design because it packs the steering, braking, the suspension, the powertrain and the control components all inside the wheel arch, basically leaving the floor of the car just for the batteries, which is kind of revolutionary when you think about it. And we've got an article on this on our website, so I'd really recommend going to have a look because the article has a video of these things running around a test track without obviously the shell or the body of the car on top of it. It's just the platform running itself around. It's really something quite interesting to watch. Yes, I saw it at CES 2021 as well. They had a, a booth there and it it really is. And I think as well, just to say, being at CES 2021, obviously RE has real ambitions for the platform, the skateboard platform. And they really do think they've got something different, don't they? That they can bring to market and something that car makers can really take advantage of rather than having to develop their own version. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, they're calling it the industry's flattest EV platform, which is you know, it's quite a claim. And because of how they've designed the car, you can understand why they're saying that. And having such a flat platform, not having to put motors across the front end of the vehicle or the back end or however a car maker might design it, it basically means greater design freedom, more space, lower total cost of ownership, as Re claims, faster development, advanced driver assistance system compatibility, reduced maintenance and global safety standard compliance. So Rhea are really trying to tick every single box that they can find as far as car maker requests are concerned. And they're hoping to start delivering these recorners somewhere in 2022 with mass production beginning in 2023. So yeah, you're going to see these kind of technology from them emerge sometime next year. And then maybe even underneath your EV if you decide to buy one the following year. I'm guessing they're going to have to find a location to be able to scale up their plans and be able to deliver huge amounts of these skateboard platforms when the demand is made and is needed. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Phil. Uh, they're actually planning a centre of engineering excellence, which sounds very grand, in uh, in the UK, funny enough, in the Mirror Technology Park in Warwickshire. And the site's going to receive some €76 million Euros worth of investment over the next three years, which is um, great for the Mirror Technology Park. And it's going to help them, that is ReCorner, meet their anticipated demand for their technology, their EV platform. And they're going to use what's known as the Cape X light manufacturing model, which is going to allow them to use actually a global network of 15 integration centres, which is going to help them assemble their components. And the first one of those is going to open up in the US in 2021. So we're going to have an advanced system designed here in the UK or developed further here in the UK. And then there's going to be a worldwide manufacturing network all of which is going to open up sometime this year or starting this year with the US, which is really quite amazing when you think about how quickly these technologies have advanced. 
I mean, ultimately, Tom, how are, um, are you planning on, on funding this? I understand there's been a recent merger with a Capital Venture Acquisition Corp. Yeah, you're up to right, Neil. You couldn't have such ambitious plans without the financial backing to go alongside it. We actually had, a, as you said, a recent merger with 10x Capital Venture Acquisition Corp, and that's so they can list on the NASDAQ, which is, of course, home to a lot of tech companies. Now, this transition is expected to provide more than $500 million of gross proceeds to the company, which is you know nothing to, to sneeze at. And this is going to include funds from a fully committed $300 million PIPE with a participation from long-standing strategic investors, which includes Koch Strategic Platforms, Marinda Marinda, and Magna International, which is definitely some names we've heard before. So I think as these different startups and different third parties, names that might not necessarily be considered a long-standing car maker or automotive manufacturer, start to enter the game as we're seeing further digitalization, further electromobility. There's going to be a lot of money flooding in to this portion of the car market, I think, and it's exactly what we're seeing now. So it's going to be really interesting not only to see what these companies can produce, but just how much attention they pick up. It's interesting, isn't it? Because electrification really has opened up the automotive industry in a way that perhaps 10 years ago we may not have thought possible. And then, of course, like you said, all the different digitalization technologies that are coming in, again, they're really opening up the industry and making it available and attractive to new players. It's going to be an interesting time to be reporting on everything and keeping up with what's going on, keeping up with the technology. It's fantastic to see so many people taking an interest but at the same point i guess we've also got to let the traditional oems not so much catch up but really sort of stake their claim and saying we are you know the experts in this field we know what we're doing and, and we'll lead it we'll buy the platform if we need to we'll develop what we need to or we'll partner with the company if we need to to make sure that we can continue our leading position in the industry yeah, and I was just going to add to that, you know, you mentioned, obviously, the opportunities it presents for OEMs. And, um, you know, just a quick point that, you know, has uh, come to a fore, especially this week. I mean, it's just, a, you know, I've been looking at the sort of the, the transformation of, you know, what we would call oil companies into essentially a net zero energy providers. So, you know, Shell has recently just announced that they're uh, becoming net zero energy provider by uh, 2050, you know, following in the uh, similar announcement from, from BP, you know, again, you know, the electrification, uh, you know, once upon a time would have been seen as a major headache for oil companies, but they're embracing it. And as I say, I think you know, almost the term oil company may well disappear and we're going to increasingly be talking about energy providers overall. So yeah, incredible ramifications. It's definitely an exciting time to be a journalist in the automotive world, and I don't think there's any better place to end than that. So that brings us to the end of today's episode. I want to thank you both so much for joining me today. No worries. My pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Great to speak to you. And please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, and Amazon Music. And last but not least, do please sign up to the AutoVista Group daily brief email at autovistagroup.com forward slash sign up. Thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>